You want Philly Philly? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, the podcast where prominent figures in sports talk about how sport has impacted the journey of their lives. Philly special. Ready? Welcome to Huddle Up with Matias Bueno, episode 18. Today's guest is a Canadian Football Hall of Famer, Winnipeg Blue Bomber Hall of Famer, and first ever punter inducted into the Canadian Football Hall of Fame, Bob Cameron. Bob, thanks so much for joining today's episode. Well, thanks for inviting me. So, Bob, the resume that you have speaks for itself, and being one of the most prolific characters in the history of Winnipeg, of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, and having played for many, many seasons and are up there in terms of the record number of years. We're going to take a deep dive into some of the nitty-gritty details and stories that really encapsulate being the, you know, the life of a punter, especially one that was so tenured in the CFL. So let's take it back to when you were playing university football and how you got the opportunity to play in the CFL. What was your experience like? You were an Acadia Axman back in the 70s and were also a heck Crichton Trophy winner. Like, so talk a little bit about your experience with Acadia and, and how being named the top college football player in Canada came about. You know what? I, I think my whole life has been a lot of luck going on. Like things, things happened to me that has never happened to anyone else. To get the opportunities that I got were, was, was amazing. And, and I'll, I'll go back right to 1974 when I went to Acadia University. I grew up in Hamilton, just outside of Hamilton, a place called Lancaster. And um, I got recruited to go out there. So I go out there and... Um, Boy, the guys that are ahead of me, as I wanted to be a quarterback, right? And so, and I punted as well. And the first exhibition game, uh, they actually put me as a third, third or fourth string quarterback. And the first exhibition game, we're playing against defending national champion St. Mary's Huskies. And in the first quarter, the starting quarterback, yeah, he, he breaks his ankle, done for the year. And so then in the second quarter, the second string quarterback, yeah, he breaks his wrist, if you can believe it in the second quarter. Now they're down to myself and this guy who had been there for four years, but he was, you know, he wasn't really um, looked at as a really a, a quarterback prospect for them. And especially in his last year. So they let me go in there and incredibly, like I played slot back a lot. I, I knew most of the plays, but as a quarterback, I was, you know, I really was put as a slot back after a while. Well, I get in there, I, I played and we were playing again against the defending national champions and we won the game. Uh, all I did was hand off the ball or throw, quick screen passes to my, my uh, high school uh, fullback. He went out there with me and we won the game. And then I, I got a chance right off the bat, right out of high school to play starting quarterback at Acadia university and um, played one game. Uh, we won. And the next game I played after the game, they, they benched me because I wasn't doing very well. And after the game, I saw the doctor said, I'm not really not feeling well. And I got mono. I had mono. So mononucleosis. And I didn't play the rest of the year. All I did was punt. They let me punt. So maybe that was a good thing because I just practiced my punting like crazy. And I got really good at punting, I guess. And then at the end of the year, um, I got healthy. And I ended up playing uh, in the championship game. We lost it. The starting quarterback played the first half. I played most of the second half. And I had a really good game. And then as fate would have it, the starting quarterback for Acadia went to Western, University of Western Ontario. The next year, you, you didn't have to wait out a year. And he was gone for the, um, to Western, and I stayed at Acadia and, and played uh, the next four years at, at Acadia University. And so you talk about luck happening and being so serendipitous with what 
what happened within your career. And so talk about what the experience was the year that you were named the Heck Crichton Trophy winner and, and how you handled being in that position because it, you know, back in the day, it didn't seem as much of a big deal as maybe it does now. And especially with, you know, you got that little trophy there for what you achieved. Here it is. I brought it with me. (laughs) Yeah. What was that experience like? Well, again, it was, I, I, I couldn't have been luckier. Here I am. I go up to the East Coast, uh, played at Acadia University, and these guys, we, we had a juggernaut of a team. I mean, I, I wasn't playing on a bottom feeder team out there. We were top-notch team. We had outstanding football players. In fact, in 1974, two guys off, off that team went and played uh, in the CFL the next year. So we, we had top-notch players, and, and, that, and when you have top players, guess what? You recruit really well, too. So we, we got a whole bunch of uh, kids out of Toronto area who are really good players as well. So uh, make a long story short, I was on great teams. And we won, we won the league championship in 75. We won the league championship in 76 and in 77. And um, because I was a starting quarterback on this team that was, you know, that was one of the top teams in Canada, um, and I had a pretty good year, that's how, I, that's how it happened for me. You know, I, I, I played well. And not only was a, a quarterback I was also a punter too so that helped me in winning the Heck Creighton award obviously but I mean I had great teammates um great football teams that I played on coaches were fantastic and and I'll get into it even down the road um you know after my university career the luck even went even better for me as as I'll I'll tell you later on so but it's it seems so opposite to nowadays you look at the AUS like the Atlantic division as very weak and people yeah, don't really no. give that much respect to you know the lore that used to be St. Mary's or Acadia or St. FX or those teams and yeah. so what where have you seen in terms of just from your position where the transition pivoted from the AUS being one of the most respected divisions to being considered the weakest division in terms of it, recruiting it, it, or yeah, it's recruiting. It's it's money getting the guys out, the top-notch players out there. It's all all that stuff. You know, it was it was tough to get players to come out there to begin with, right? To make a commitment to come that far away out of university, and then the money and the prestige with the Southern Ontario conferences, I think, um, really sort of lit it up. And then, uh, of course, the Quebec conference. You know, they they came in, and I guess in the late '90s, and um, they just won championship after championship. So um, now, now where are you going to get these guys? So the, most of the guys that were, we had a lot of guys from Quebec, Quebec conference would go out to a, a Katie university. And like I say, St. Mary's and St. Francis Xavier. And that, that sort of stopped right, right there. It seemed like, um, and then it's, it's, it's tough money-wise. You need the support of the alumni. Well, we, 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 we were from a school of 2,500 kids. And, you know, when we played, I played in two national championship games against Western, University of Western Ontario, and they had 25,000 people come to their school and they had the choice of anybody in Southern Ontario that they wanted. And um, it was, that's, that's the problem. And so it's, it, you're right, it has turned into a, a second tier conference now, which is pretty sad, but that's just the way um, life is, you know. And, and when I was there, there were seven teams. Um, University of Prince Edward Island played. They had a, a team, yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we used to we used to get on the ferry to go and play University of Prince Edward Island. It was awesome, and um, we had the University of New Brunswick. They they were a powerhouse too for a while there, and then 
and then they folded. And and then they had Dalhousie University, and they were they were going good. They folded. So you know, there's only four teams left down there now. So I mean, when that happened, a lot of the players said, "Well, this there's too few teams in the conference." And and I think Bishop's University is now part of the conference because Bishop's got sort sort of left behind when um, you know the big powers. Um, came into being in, in the Quebec League. And that, that was a real problem uh, for the whole conference as well. But every year there's two or three guys. I think there's two guys on the, um, on the Winnipeg Blue Bombers are from Acadia University. So there's, uh, there are some damn good players out there too. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting aspect to really note that the AUS used to be the pride of the line when it came to Canadian football and university. And now there were teams that don't exist anymore, such as you mentioned, the university of New Brunswick. And yeah. It's it. Money is such an important aspect of it now that it makes it tough for there to be that competitive balance between universities across Canada. And obviously like you mentioned the, the Quebec conference really coming to life in the nineties yeah. when Laval came to the league, they won more national championships in like 20 years than anyone else had ever done since like yeah. the fifties or whenever the first Vanya cup was. So right. uh, was there a Quebec conference before, or was it just that Laval there was did not exist? Well, it, it sort of changed around a bit. Yeah, there was a Quebec conference, but it was, um, uh, it wasn't really that, that big a power conference. Like I don't think they took it that serious. It was sort of a hockey uh, was big in, big in those schools, you know, like, um, I, I, then, then it, it seemed to, uh, all change, um, when Laval really started humming along, you're right. And that was what I think around 95, somewhere around there. And they basically won half the championships since they, they came into power. So, um, it's been, it's really tough to see what what happened but i know we we played against those conferences you know in the in the atlantic bowls and we beat them you know we beat them quite handily um and then it just like i said you know they took it way too way more serious than anybody else they it wasn't like oh let's go out and play football this they took it on a on a level that that you see in major u.s colleges you know when guys would be up at six, six o'clock in the morning every 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 day before school and, and weightlifting for two hours. Well, that never happened back in my day. I mean, in the off season, we, you know, we go to the gym and work out, but it was not, nothing serious. There's nothing, there was no, nobody got together as a, um, um, as players and coaches in the off season. Now it's all, that's all they do. So it's, it's been completely different and we, we have been left behind and it's, but, but you're right. The Quebec conference, um, They've had a complete change. There's no question about it. So you talk about that difference in the way that you guys practiced and really improved and developed yourselves compared to now. Did you notice for, through the long tenure of your career when exactly that point was that the transition was made for it to be normalized that everybody was working out around the clock and weightlifting like crazy or did it just kind of slowly happen over time? Well, I, it was more or less put on your on yourself. If you wanted to work out hard and get to the next level, then you did. And then it would, the coaches, you know, it, it stems always from from your coaches down, as I look at it. And if the coaches are are super keen and they they're really proud of their uh, institution and and their their teams, then they're going to work harder. And that's the only way they're going to get to the top. And Bob Vespasiani was my my head coach, and he came from. Um, uh, Maine, I guess it was Maine or uh, Massachusetts. And so he came up in that U.S. Uh, college sort of uh, environment. And so he, and see, he sort of brought that, that attitude 
to Acadia University. And that's because we never, we did nothing in the, in the 60s and even in the early 70s until Bob Vespasiani became the head coach. I think it was in 1970. And then he, you could just see, you know, the first year they, they were getting their ass kicked. And then after that, they just, every year kept getting better and better. And I can say I got there in 74 and 73, they were the only team to beat St. Mary's Huskies that year. They, they, St. Mary's lost one game. That was to Acadia. And they won the national championship. So we were on the cusp. And, and once that happened, now there's two powerhouses down there. Then all the other teams said, well, we, we got to really go to get, you know, to compete with these guys. And, and I think that was sort of the way it happened in the Quebec conference too. Once Laval came in, that whole conference completely changed. This isn't there to have fun. This is there to win championships. And, and what they've done is absolutely phenomenal. 100%. It's so interesting to see the way in which history changes over the course of time with training regiments and routines and what the teams are doing is that, you know, it's not just like it. I'm sure you've read articles or heard things about NHL players, how they made it in the 50s or 40s. Oh, yeah. If you can do X number of jumping jacks and this and that, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever you're oh, yeah. in. But nowadays it's like hockey is probably the hardest sport to be a professional athlete in, in terms of the physical endurance and the people you're up against. Like it's, it's crazy. Well, I always said, you know, when I, when I kept trying out and kept getting cut, I always said to myself, you know what, I, what I have to do, if I keep getting cut, I've got to beat these guys out. This is competition. This is, is you know, this is, um, this is the ultimate in trying and, you know, in society, in life itself, you know, life is a competition and you've got to beat people out as long as, you know, uh, I'm not going to get political here, but in so socialism, everybody, uh, has, plays the same game, all get together. But in capitalism, the best get the job, and the other ones are booted on the, on the wayside. And if you can't handle that, then you're not never going to play. And there's going to be there's going to be lots of times when you get kicked in the in the teeth, and you think, well, I'm never getting up. This is it. I mean, I'm done. That's the attitude you can't have. Or man, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna show these guys they made a huge mistake, and now I'm I'm gonna work out even harder. And that's what I was getting to the point where. I said, okay, if I'm going against guys that are as good, good as good as athletes as I am, then I've got to work harder than them. I've got to find an edge somehow. And so I would work, I would try to, the whole off season, I'd be working all the time, as hard as I possibly could, at least, at least hard as I thought I, I could. And then the next time that I, I go against a guy, I know that I've worked out harder than he has. And, and um, if everything works out right, I should get the job. That's, that was my attitude. So let us take that into our next transition in terms of a question is that now we get to the phase of your career when you're going to the CFL. You yeah. drafted by Edmonton in 1977 and didn't make it and went back to play another year of Acadia and then had the do or die presented on the table in terms of making the CFL the following year. So talk about what, that, what happened in that first year when you were drafted by Edmonton and then we'll yeah. get into the Winnipeg. Yeah. Well, when I was drafted by Edmonton, really the, um, their punter, I think it was Gary Lefebvre had left and then he, um, they drafted me to be their punter. And so I go there. And as I, I mentioned before we got on the air here, there was a guy named Hank Elisic who was in grade 11 going into grade 12. They wanted me to work with him just to punt with him. And I go, sure. So I, I'm punting to him while he's blowing him over my head back. So, I mean, he's a better punter than me already. He's a grade 11. I couldn't believe it. And so sure enough, he ended up getting the job. I got cut. 
And then I, after I got cut, I went to Calgary, tried out for Calgary Stampeders. I was cut there. So now, now it's in the fall of 77. I said, well, I'm going to go back to university, um, finish off my degree, and play one more year of football. And I was fortunate enough. We went to the national championship game again. Unfortunately, we lost against Western. But um, I won the Heck Crichton that year. It's the outstanding college football player in Canada. So I said, okay, well, that first year really didn't work out too well for me. But I'm going to go back in 78, and I'm going to show these guys. Well, I, I got tryouts, a lot of tryouts in 78. I tried, tried out for Philadelphia Eagles. They flew me down there twice. And um, I went to a free agent camp with them. And unfortunately, did not get signed. Um, then the Ottawa, um, Ottawa Rough Riders signed me. And I went and tried out for Ottawa Rough Riders. I was cutting it up for Ottawa. Then I, I was uh, hired by the Toronto Argonauts. They had a, a senior team. And I was hired by the Toronto Argonauts senior team to punt and, and play quarterback for them in the summertime. And um, uh, nothing happened for me. I, I actually tried out for Hamilton Ticats. I, I, I was going to play a couple exhibition games as Hamilton Ticats. And I was cut there. And so now I basically back to my fifth year at Acadia University. I said, okay, well, I don't have much choice here. I want to, I, I, I'm not giving up on the dream. And I went back to Acadia in the fall, fall of 78 and tried out um, after, after that year. And I did not have a good year. My attitude was, and I totally admit it was not good. I, was, I couldn't believe I wasn't playing. You know, your, your, your whole job is a subjective evaluation of the head coach. If he doesn't like you, for whatever reason, if you're not good enough or he just something it thinks you're not tough enough or whatever, then you're cut. And so I, I said, you know what, I've got to, I can do it. I know I can do it. I just got to get in the right place at the right time. And then in seven, and again, and now it's 1979 and I played in the Can-Am Bowl in Florida, won the MVP as a, as a punter only. And I got a, I, uh, I signed with the Buffalo Bills in the NFL and played a couple exhibition games with Buffalo. And I actually did okay, but um, I was in the last cuts. And the guy, you know, was cut down between myself and this guy, Rusty Jackson. Rusty Jackson made the team and I got cut. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to – somebody in the CFL is going to give me a look now for sure and nothing. And I started working in Red Deer, Alberta. My brother was a geologist and I got worked with this company. It was a well site services company. And um, I'd given up the dream. That was it. I was done. I was never going to play. I was 25 years old at that point. And on the day off, on one of my days off, I was going from Red Deer to Calgary to go skiing with my brother. And I heard on the radio that Bernie Ruoff, punter, field goal kicker for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, has just been charged with trafficking of marijuana, if you can believe it. And I'm going, what the? And I just went off the road. I said, oh, boy, really? And I and. And I get, I get to Calgary and I started thinking, okay, maybe this will work out because Bob Vespasiani, my head coach at Acadia University, is now the assistant, an assistant coach with Winnipeg Blue Bombers. Not only assistant coach, he's a special teams coach. He's the punter coach for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. So guess what? That week, I get a phone call from Bob Vespasiani and asking me, do you want to give it one more try this spring coming up for the Bombers? And I go, absolutely. So... Here I am. I'm working as a well site services company where we, we would go out and we, you know, dig wells and we put down sophisticated electronic equipment down the holes. And I was work. I was just a laborer working with these guys. And I can remember telling these guys, well, guys, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to be quitting uh, this spring because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out for professional football. And they all laughing at me. They're going, yeah, sure. You're a Bob, right? Because they just knew me as 
as a, you know, a laborer with the rest of these guys. I was trying to work my way up, obviously, but um, so, yeah, so I quit in the spring and came out to Winnipeg in, in 1980. And even then I got cut. I was playing. Um, it was unbelievable. So I, I come out to Winnipeg and I'm doing okay. I'm punting the ball half decent in training camp, but there was a domino effect when Bernie Roth got traded to Hamilton Ticats. Hamilton Tri Tiger Cats now um, traded their punter to Toronto Argonauts. So now Toronto Argonauts in training camp have two punters. One of them is getting cut, and it's been in the papers in Winnipeg. Whoever gets cut is coming to Winnipeg to take Cameron's job. And so I said, well, I guess I'm here just one more time, and then that'll be it. So we go to Toronto. Believe it or not, we go to Toronto, the last exhibition game. And Trevor Kennard has just been signed. And Trevor Kennard comes out in that exhibition game, his first game, okay? He goes out in that exhibition game as a field goal kicker. Yeah, he goes four for four, one from 57 yards out. And the head coach is just, Ray Ock is going, wow, this Trevor Kennard is unbelievable. And, he's, and so they're not going to pay, and they're paying me peanuts, like it's $22,000. And, and um, uh, the guy that they cut in Toronto was making 75000 bucks, right? And so he gets cut in Toronto, and so we're not bringing him in just to punt for that kind of money, and he wasn't going to come just for that. So I sort of won my job because of Trevor Kennard. Trevor Kennard was unbelievable. And that's, and, and um, the guy's name was Ian Sunter, the punter for Toronto Argonauts that got cut. He's a punter field goal kicker. Yeah, he didn't play in the CFL anymore uh, for one reason. Yeah, he went to the NFL after that. He gets cut from Toronto Argonauts. Yeah, went down and played in the NFL. And for one, I think one year and then, then his career was over. But, but um, so you talk about luck again. How lucky is that? Trevor Kenner doesn't show up. I'm done. It's over. They bring Ian Sancho out to Winnipeg, and, my, and that's my career. And that's how lucky I got. And then, and then the fifth game of the year, we're playing, we're playing in Hamilton, my hometown. My, my high school football coaches are coming. My, uh, all my buddies from high school, I only, I only grew up 10, 10 miles away, right? And so um, after the pregame meal, I'm in, I'm in there. I'm going to play, right? After the pregame meal, yeah, the head coach, Rayak, comes up to me, taps me on the shoulder. and goes, yeah, Bob, uh, you're cut. We have brought another punter in for this game. I'm going, no, you can't be serious. Yes. Yeah, you're cut. And we're playing another punter. And so I just, when I said to him, well, can I come back and compete for my job? And he goes, yeah, Bob, sure. That's, that's a great idea. Sure, sure, just do that. Now, you know, and so Ray and I didn't get along too well, but at the same time, I'll say Ray gave me the opportunity to play. And I said, okay, if that's my career, I played four games. That's, that's good enough, I guess. But I still thought, you know, I'm better than the guy they brought in. I can't believe this. So anyways, he goes out and has a terrible game has like a 34 yard average. And I go back to Winnipeg and I'm punting against this guy in practice. And I remember the, the head coach Ray standing beside him going, geez, Gerald, that, you're kicking really well today. Why didn't you kick so well the other night there? And, and I went to Bob Vespasiani, my head coach, and I said, listen, Bob, I, I think I'm getting screwed here. Like, I, I'm better than this guy. Why is Ray thinking this guy is, is the man? He goes, well, then you guys got to go and talk to him. I go, well, I've been now cut by how many teams? And I've got to go to Ray Ox's office. I went in. I, he said, you go and talk to Ray. I get, I get it. Um, 
Off the field, I go into Ray Ock's office and I sit down with him. I said, Ray, I think the way you're evaluating us in practice is wrong. I said, just standing, handing us a ball and kicking it is not game-like conditions. I said, when I tried out in the NFL, I got 15 kicks charted. Distance, hang time, time to get it off. Any more than, um, than one point, it was 2.3 seconds to get it off, it didn't count. And then you'll find out who in pressure situations can, can do the job better. And he just looked at, I thought he's going to boot me out. And he goes, all right, Bob, we'll just do that. And so here it is, game on. I, now I've got to beat this guy up every practice. After practice, he had them all charted. And then he comes up and he says, okay, I want to see both you guys. This is the day before the game. So I want to see both you guys in my office separately. And so he, the other guy goes in first, comes back out. I'm sitting in my locker, just biting my fingernails, going, okay, am I going to get back my job? Sure enough. He comes up and he says, well, Bob, um, you've got your job back, but don't get too excited because they've already signed another punter who's going to be in the press box tomorrow night, if you can believe it. Oh, yeah. So that's what I was trying to tell you before. You know, my journey to the CFL was unbelievable heartache and yet luck to get opportunities. And fortunately, as time went on, the opportunity after I sort of proved myself, then it got to a point where when, when uh, Cal Murphy came in 83, it was just, you know, the pressure was off me and I could just relax and kick the way I knew I could. And from that one game that I missed in Hamilton, I did not miss a game from, so that would have been, I think in August of, of uh, 1980, I missed that one game in Hamilton. I did not miss another game until 2000. So that was 20 years. I basically played every game. Not only did I play every game, I played every exhibition game, every punt after an, at when Cal Murphy came in 83. So there's my story in a nutshell. An incredible story at that and the perseverance it took. I can only imagine being in that position, you know, when I was playing kicker myself, bouncing around teams and you're so unsure and, you know, a coach can just not like your hair one day or whatever it is right. and just, oh, I'm putting in this person. It doesn't matter. Yes. And you can't do anything but go out nothing. there and ignore it and still kick the same way that you can. But obviously, human nature would tell us that that's not that easy because you're having to worry about, you know, you're trying to be a professional. What if you, like, how are you going to get on with your life if you don't get this? What about a family? All these other things. It's not just willy-nilly you can go to every single team forever because there eventually comes a point where that's the end. And like you said, you were in Calgary and you were like, you know, I'm going to go play pro football in Winnipeg. And then everyone's laughing at you. And then how many years later you look back and you're like, well, I guess it was the worthwhile decision. So, but again, it was unbelievable luck. It was unbelievable situation that had the, the stars had to line up perfectly for me to get the opportunity. How many people get an opportunity four years in a row? Like I was drafted in 77. I didn't make it till 1980. That was four seasons. I kept trying out. So it was, it was incredibly lucky. And then, then even in, in 1981, uh, they drafted a punt, a guy named Dave Brown out of um, University of Alberta. He was their first draft, draft pick. They didn't have a first-round choice, so they picked Dave. And Dave came out, and I had to beat him out in 81. And then, then they seasoned him back in the university, and they brought him back in 82. And I had to beat him out again in 82. Oh, it was, it was unbelievable. And then, like I say, and then Cal Murphy came in 83, and we started winning, you know, great cups. And, and once you, honestly, once you win great cups and you've done a pretty good job as a punter, 
then sort of the magic dust is sprinkled on you and they don't want to make any changes. Like how many guys we had on those teams for years and years. And it was because you're now looked at completely differently than if you don't win championships. If you lose championships, you're looked at, well, that's a cause for you guys losing. But if you win championships and you have good games, then they look, well, those you played good games in championship games. Well, you can handle the pressure. We want you to stay. And, you know, incredibly, that's that's how it all turned around for me. And it's, like you said, you know, there's so much luck and serendipity and timing that has to go into every small little thing. The butterfly effect is what led to your illustrious career, but it wasn't along the way without so many things that if they had not, had they not happened, you wouldn't have had the career you had. And it's just crazy to think about that in and of itself. And you look at the stretches of time you played for Winnipeg too. How did you compare in terms of like handling your job with the team, the eighties versus the nineties versus the end of your career? Was there still that sense of urgency that you once had, or did it really like subside and you were able to, to come into your own as your career went on? Well, again, it was a lot of, there were some lucky things that have to happen, you know? I mean, and really, I look back at it. In 1980, there was not that many uh, specialist punters. There's only 32-man rosters. So most, a lot of guys would be a linebacker or whatever to punt. So in essence, you've got to be at the top of your game every year to, to be a punter. Because a lot of guys, even now, are punter field goal kickers. I just punted. So if you're just a punter, then they're always looking for the guy that can punt and kick field goals. It just so happened that Trevor Kennard was just a field goal kicker and I was just a punter. And so they were probably looking, if you're not on the top of your game, they're looking to make a change. There's no question about it. But once the, the roster started getting bigger, that they could afford just specialist punters and just specialist kick, uh, field goal kickers, that was sort of a bit of a turning point. And then right at the height of my career, I had a really good game in the Grey Cup in 1988 when I won the outstanding Canadian in the Grey Cup. And all I, I, obviously all I did was punt. And so right then it was a super windy day. And you know, I'll, I'll go back to the, the, the wind situations in Winnipeg and Saskatchewan are you know, legendary, how, how tough the wind can be. And, and honestly, this one, the first game in 1980 that I played in Saskatchewan in that Labor Day Classic, my first punt, it was a hurricane. And I'm into the, into the wind and I'm punting from our own 20 yard line. I punted. They came with a huge punt rush. I tried to draw the rough in the punter penalty. And I see the ball go off the outside of my foot, land about 15 yards down the field, start bounding backwards. And I punted from our 20. Yeah, it went out of bounds on our 12. Nobody touched it. It went out of bounds on our 12. I'm lying on my back looking at it. I go, no, what the hell? And so then my next punt, yeah, it went five yards. Five yards. And they didn't blow it dead in those days either. It was crazy. So it hit and start bounding backwards. And then they block you so you couldn't run down the field and jump on it either. So it was, it was crazy. I had one punt, went 78 yards that day. So after that game, and we won the game. After that day, game, I said, okay, if I'm ever going to make it in the CFL for the long run, then I've got to learn to punt in the wind. So every time in practice, I've never punt with the wind. I'd practice punting into the wind. And I developed a style, a punting style that I thought would be conducive to punting into the wind. I just kept at it, kept at it, kept at it. So it would give us an advantage on windy days that I could punt in the wind. And everyone else, if you came from a dome stadium or a place that didn't have a lot of wind, their punter would be freaked out. And, and I wasn't. I, I thought I could handle it. And I, and I did pretty well. And then, 
And then in the 1988 Grey Cup, we win by one point, and I was very fortunate to be the outstanding Canadian, and I had a really good game punting into the wind. Got a couple singles. We won the game by one point. And then once that happened, then that's how I lasted as long as I did. They were going, wow. Well, even if he's lost some power in his leg, he can still punt in the wind in cold weather games. And so, again, how lucky was that? I got, you know, I, that I, you know, knew that I needed to really work on my punting into the wind. I got a lot of opportunities, a lot of practice here. And even though I didn't maybe have a strong leg, as guys they bring in, they knew in my background I could punt into the wind very well. So they were just comfortable with me, and that's why I kept my job for all those years. So the 1988 Great Cup, for those listening who may not be as familiar, you guys were playing BCUs at, I think it was yeah. Lansdowne Park in Ottawa, correct? Right, it was. Yeah, super tight game, and the, the last drive that BC had, uh, yep. I had again through the pick, and then yes. you were tasked with – having to run around and waste yeah. time towards yeah. the end of the game. What was going through your head in that time? Obviously, I'm sure you had to be cool as a cucumber, but what were you thinking as you guys had well, gotten the interception? You know, I'll, I'll tell you what happened. So we were with the wind at that point. We had the wind in the fourth quarter. And so there's only like two minutes left in the game. And yeah, maybe yeah, about two minutes, I guess. Maybe even less than that. And I remember we went to the bench, Trevor, Trevor Kenner and I, we went to Mike Riley and said, Mike, We've got to give up a safety here. If we punt the ball, um, they're right, basically going to be in field goal range right off the bat. Why don't we take the chance on kicking off deep, <laughs> holding them deep, and then, um, and then hopefully winning the game? And we're, we're, up, we're, we're up by three points at that time, which maybe, you know, there's either way you can look at it. Okay, we, if I nailed a big punt, but well, we're back on our goal line. I mean, well, most I could hope for maybe midfield, they run it back 10. Well, they're in the 45-yard line. You know, there's lots of time for them to go down and score a touchdown and win the game or, or run the timeout, kick a field goal, then to go overtime. And honestly, we weren't that great a team. I mean, we, we had two first downs in the whole second half of that game. We were holding on by the skin of our teeth. So we had to just take a chance and give up the safety. But I'll, I'll never forget, I've, I've, I've seen the film of that a few times. So I get the ball, and I'm faking like I'm going to punt it. And then I rolled out to my left. And then I saw one of our guys down the field wide open. And I could have just, you know, being the quarterback back in the university, I thought, oh, I'd love to just. So I, I, I wasn't going to throw it, but I, I gave a pump fake. Like it. And I, I think afterwards, you know, you, you always think, of the, okay, what could, go, what could have gone wrong? What happens if the ball slipped out of my hand or something? Oops, incomplete pass. Can you imagine? And then they would have had the ball on the one-yard line. <sighs> yeah. But it didn't happen. I ran around a bit, and then there were steps at the end of the stadium. They were right on my, my tail, and I ran up the steps uh, at the end of the stadium. And we ended up kicking off, and we stopped them on three plays, and we ran the clock out. And it was bedlam after that, winning, winning the Grey Cup. And, and we were huge underdogs in that game as well. So it was Sean Salisbury and the boys. It was, um, I talked to Sean just uh, about a month ago. So it's, it's amazing. You win championships. There is a bond there forever. You know, all those guys that we played with, we still try to keep in touch at some points. And there's a lot of guys that stayed after as well who played for the Bombers and are still here. So in your career, you played through, from 1980 till 2002. That's, you know, 23 seasons. Is that, is that second most all-time for any CFL player? I think it is, yeah. Lou Pisaglia and BC played 25, mm -hmm. and I think I'm second. 
my only claim to fame is I guess I, uh, I played the most games in a row uh, without missing a game, which isn't a real big feat when you're a punter, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not like you're getting pounded every game, right? So, yeah. So I think I had a, a 352, somewhere around there. I don't know. I'd have to look it up. But I mean, with all the things that you went through, I think that feat makes it, you know, a little more respectable with, you know, being scared well, I, for your job for first few years and everything. Yeah, I, I honestly, you know, I had a chip on my shoulder against everyone at that point, you know, getting cut and going, I, I know I'm, I'm good enough. I can remember going home after the auto rough riders was the worst one that I ever, that I, I still to this day, I thought, you know what, I'm, I was better than that was this. And here's a crazy thing. Okay. When I, when I, um, got cut in, in Edmonton in 1977, guy's name was Gerald Kunick who beat me out. And then he lost his job to Hank Elizabeth. Gerald Kunick, then guess what? Um, when I tried to for auto rough riders, guess what? Gerald Kunick is a punter for auto rough riders. Same guy. 19, this is 1978 now. And he beat me out in 78. Guess who the guy was that came in 1980 and I lift the one, the one game that I missed? Yeah, that'll be Gerald Kunick again in Hamilton. So three times he beat me out. I'm sure he says to his kids, I'm way better than that guy who played all those years. And, you know, he's, he's got a legitimate uh, point there. But I remember George Brancato, who was the head coach for Ottawa Roughriders, I remember after the game, well, be, be, when I got cut, sorry, when I got cut, the day of the cutdowns, they had in the paper, everyone who made the team, everyone who got cut, they were right on every guy except for me, everyone. And I go into George Brancato's office, and I just, I was begging him. This is the head coach. You can just imagine, you know, I was so upset. I, I was begging. I said, how can you possibly make this decision? I said, you know, I, I, I had the highest punting average in, in university history, I can only get better. I'm, I'm only 23 or 24 years old. You know, this guy's already shown what he's got. And I, I, was, I was making my point. And he, he said a couple of things to me that always stuck with me. He said, um, well, one, one thing he says, well, George Hughes was a, it's amazing. This is how ingrained these words were. He said, George Hughes, a punter in the NFL in the 50s, he's our uh, offensive line coach. He thinks you're going to be inconsistent because you have a one-handed drop and Gerald Kunick has a two-handed drop. I'm going, so it's not performance then? I, I beat him out in practice every day. Do you, are you guys watching? I beat him out in the exhibition games. I, I don't understand this. And then he said the one thing that, that really hit me and it was, you know what, we, we like Gerald. I'm going, what? I thought this was pro sport. You like him? It's not performance? I, and I was honestly, the way I'm talking to you, I was basically begging him. And I remember driving home from, you know, it was, a, it was about uh, 200 miles, I guess, home from, uh, uh, from Ottawa to Hamilton. I remember my days off, I just thought, or when, I, when I got cut, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you know what, if I could ever make a team, and if the coaches like me, even if they bring in other guys that are better than me, they'll keep me. I said, I, said, I think these coaches are freaking stupid. I'm going, how stupid are you? I, I couldn't believe it. And then even down, down the road, so this is after, you know, my career, career had gotten uh, a lot better. I guess this would be in the 90s. And there was an um, assistant coach for, for Edmonton Eskimos and who actually coached with George Brancato. And so George Brancato coached after that a few years after that. And he was, um, uh, you know, I played against him too when he was playing, when he was coaching Ottawa and I was obviously in Winnipeg. And, uh, and I'm in warm-ups, and this coach comes up to me and talks to me, and he says, okay. And he said, Bob, you're really hitting the ball well today or something like this. You know, just, just, 
small talk. And and he said, you know what? You remember, you remember he got cut for a, uh, Ottawa in in uh, 1978. And I said, do I? I said I'm still I still burns inside me. He goes, I just want you to know that George Rancato when 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 I was an assistant coach with him, and we were watching you warm up. He said to me that, you know, he said of all the personnel decisions that I've made, the worst one I ever did was cutting Cameron. I'm going, I said, come on, you're just, you're lying. No, okay, nice, nice try, but no. And he says, no, I am dead serious, Bob. I'm dead, dead serious. That, that, that's what he said to me. And so you can maybe take that for a little bit that um, he admitted his, his mistake in that point. And I'm going, well, I knew he had made a mistake. He just didn't listen to me. So anyways, it's, um, there was a lot of hard struggles, let me tell you, to, um, to play all those years. And honestly, it was when Cal Murphy came in 83 that the whole thing turned for me. And obviously, it was, um, it was a great, wonderful part of my life, that's for sure. So having played for many, many years and played in, uh, you know, the last great cup you would have played in would have been 2001, and then you played 2002, yeah. and then that was your final season. Yeah. So once you got towards the end of it all, what was the, I guess, what were some of the major factors that made you decide to, to oh. retire or decide to, to finally, you know, see the, the light at the end of the tunnel because you'd been yeah. in, through so much, so many trials and tribulations yeah. and been through it all and played so many seasons. So what at the end made you say, okay, now I'm done. Well, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. I mean, and uh, Dave Rich was a head coach and Dave actually came up to me and said, Bob, you played so long. You've done so well that you, you've earned the right to retire when you want to retire. But he said, you can't get crazy here and play till you're 60. But, but he said, and, and I said, well, I really appreciate that, that a coach would actually come to me and say that. And so, but even then, even my last, I had a herniated disc. That's when I missed it. And uh, I lost the last half of the year in, in 2000. And then I came back and, the next year, I did work my butt off the whole winter. I said, okay, we're so close. I think we've got a really good team. And, of course, we went to the Grey Cup. And then I, uh, I said, oh, we got so unlucky in that one Grey Cup. we got to come back in, in the, in the, the next year, in 2002. And it didn't happen for us. We lost to Edmonton in Edmonton. And I said, That was okay, a close game, too. Yeah, it was real close. It was, it was, there was issues there. We they had a fake punt, and they ran it down our throat. And there was just a crazy game. Anyway, and – Anyways, the, um, after that, um, I, just, I just thought, okay, this is it. I've got to give it up. I, I was 48 years old. I was the oldest player ever to play. 48, my last. I played at 48 years old my last year. So that just shows you. Yeah, I didn't have much. And honestly, when I was playing, my, I would have to hit my best punt. Like I would have to annihilate it just I'd have to hit that best punt every time and you know when you're younger in your career you're hitting punts you know 55 60 yards if you if you if you kill it right and then um if you shank it maybe 35 or something like that well here I, my best punt is like 43 44 yards and I have to hit that every friggin' time I miss one of those and I'm putting us in a in a hole right so and and uh, Troy Westwood I punt with him every day in practice he was beating me. He was better than me. And he was a field goal kicker, right? So I knew it was, it was over um, that year for sure. And I probably should have quit after the 2001, but it was such a heartbreak losing that, that great cup when I wanted one more. So that's more or less what happened there. 
So Bob, we're getting towards the end of our time here. So we're going to ask one more question before we wrap yeah. up today's episode. So having played second longest number of seasons in the CFL and having played in six great cups with the Bombers, of all the memories and all the things you've gone through with football, if there was one thing that you would look back on in your career and be the most grateful for, what is that one thing? And how do you reflect on that one thing in your day-to-day life since the years that you finished playing football? Well, the one I think in, in my situation, the one thing, and I've told my kids, I've got four kids and I live in Winnipeg. I've been here for what, 30, 30 some years now, 40, 40 years now. So I look at, and I talk to my kids all the time, um, never give up. If you give up, I always, you know, my son tried out for the Bombers too. And I said, if, if you quit, you'll never make it. And it's like anything you want to try and do, it's easy to quit. Everybody can quit, but it takes, takes a lot to, you know, dust yourself off and stand up and go back at it. Even though I can, you know, I would even, when I came, came to Winnipeg in 1980, I knew, I knew a lot of the guys on the team, even just from playing university ball and those can-am balls. And I felt sort of sheepish that going, they're probably looking at me and going, what is he doing here again? He's trying out again. Doesn't this guy ever give up? I mean, come on. And you've got to fight those thoughts in your mind that, you know, you've got to stand up and go, okay, I can do this and I'm going to show people I can do it. And in the end, if I can't do it, then I gave it everything I got and I couldn't, and I wouldn't look back at my life and go, well, you know what? I I didn't really try as hard as I could have. I, I always thought I'm going to go as hard as I can. And if it works out, fantastic. If it doesn't, then I've got nothing to be ashamed of. So that, that's what I bring to it. And wiser words couldn't have been spoken. And even when reflecting on any person's football career, never giving up is such an essential component of being a professional football player because you never know how many times you may get the next opportunity to play in the next game or the next season. After all, the, every single year, you know, GMs are out to recruit you and it's the the greatest competition of all time. And to have lasted for that many seasons after all the things you went through is truly one of the most remarkable things for any CFL player throughout the entire league's history for to play all those seasons after all the things that you went through. It's, it's incredible. So with that, Bob, I want to thank you so much for having joined us today. And it it was an incredible time. And and I'm so glad we're able, I was able to, to bring your stories to life and to share with all the listeners. Well, thanks so much. It was, uh, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy talking these stories because it just brings up old memories and, and I love those times. It was great. Well, everyone, thank you again for listening to episode 18 with Bob Cameron, Canadian Football League or Canadian Football Hall of Fame and Winnipeg Blue Bomber Hall of Fame punter. Here we go, here we go. Tonight! Easy, easy! And the goal! Kill, kill! Moves to the right, it goes directly to Clement. Clement reverses it. Nick Foles! It's a touchdown by Nick Foles! Let's go! Let's go! Everything today! Let's go, Bizarre! Catch him and throw him! Let's go! Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Huddle Up. Make sure to follow on social media at Huddle Up Podcast on Instagram and on YouTube at Huddle Up with Matias Bueno. Let's make sure to execute this week and I'll see you next time.